listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Career Couch with Dr. Carol and Friends. I am Dr. Carol Isom Barnes, host of the podcast and owner of Experience Leadership, a business management consulting company. I am happy you are joining us today for a new episode in season four. Today's guests and co-authors are Chris Edmonds and Mark Babbitt. Their new book, Good Comes First, is has recently been released and they are here to talk to us about their book and their research. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about each of these two gentlemen. Uh, Chris is a speaker, author, and executive consultant who helps senior leaders create and sustain purposeful, positive, productive work cultures. After leading successful teams for 15 years, Chris started his company, The Purposeful Culture Group, in 1990. Over the years, he has worked for clients in numerous industries, such as financial services, government, hospitality, insurance, manufacturing, and pharmaceutical, just to name a few. And Mark is the president of Work IQ, a consultancy focused on improving leadership and developing workplace intelligence. And he is also the founder of CEO of U-Turn, a community focused on helping young careerists get their first or next internship or job. A recovering Silicon Valley engineer, he has worked with many high-tech clients and startups and consulted with many healthcare and nonprofit organizations. He has contributed to Harvard Business Review, Entrepreneur, Forbes, and more. Both guests have been named a top 100 leadership speaker by Inc. Magazine. Thank you both for being here to talk about your new book, Good Comes First. Well, thank you, Carol. And thanks for reading those long bios. I uh, <laughs> didn't realize you read how them long those Just were. like we wrote them. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Well, you know what? You have a lot of experience, and I think the lead- the listeners need to know about your background and your experience and what makes you credible on this topic. So I think it's important for them to know. Great. Thank you. And so, absolutely. You know, I saw something that came across the news today, and it said the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that more than 4.3 million workers had quit their jobs in August of 2021, which is the latest data on this topic. So from your perspective, is this an organizational culture issue? Is it a social issue, an economic issue, or all of the above? <laughs> I would, I'll jump in and say all of the above, but, but I think we have been seeing this. There's been over 20 million that have quit voluntary separations in the last four months, five months. So there's a pattern here. It's not a blip. It is, it is right. a clear pattern. And yes, there's lots of conversation about the great resignation, but we're pretty convinced that people are leaving lousy bosses and toxic colleagues and that that is the root of this. Now you said, so lousy bosses, toxic cultures. All right. So the two of you wrote an article that I read, which was entitled The Most Important Culture Factor to Producing Results. And in that article, you state the challenge is that most business leaders don't believe it's their responsibility to create a respectful workplace. Instead, they believe their responsibility is to create a productive workplace. So from my opinion, Treating people with respect is just common sense for a leader, right? It's something that we learn 
but we should learn early, even as a kid, like how you treat people is going to, you know, have an impact on the type of results that you get from the person. That's to me, that's basic one on one. So why is this not happening in the workplace? Because of, because of how leaders are trained, Carol, we we know uh, uh, instinctively as humans, we should treat people kindly. We should validate their their work, their contributions. We should respect their thoughts and their ideas and their opinions. And and then we get to the workplace and especially a certain segment of our our, our, our leadership population, they forget all that. They, they still seem to think like maybe 1974, you're, you're just lucky to have a job. You're replaceable. I don't have to treat you with respect. I'll just get somebody else to come in and do the work. And, and that worked for a long time. That worked for 40, 50 years. And, and now, especially since the pandemic hit, that that despite all the horrors that came with that pandemic people had a chance to reflect and to and to look at their work and and they had the freedom and autonomy that they've never had before and and many of them getting back to this great resignation idea have decided you know what i didn't i didn't i didn't thrive in the old normal i didn't thrive in a disrespectful workplace i like working from home i like a flexible schedule i like being home when my kids get home from school and i'm not going back to that old normal and and they're going to find jobs where respect is on an equal plane as results the companies that are treating their people well are not suffering from the great resignation it's not a problem for them it's only the industries and the companies where they're still treating people like we did in the industrial age. And and the problem, as Mark said, is we've never asked leaders to proactively manage the health of their work cultures. They're really not expected to. They're not incented to. They're not paid to. They're not held responsible to. And yet senior leaders are the ones that set the tone. They also model the kinds of behaviors that they expect others to do. And the problem in a great, great many organizations is that leaders don't treat people very respectfully. They treat them with disdain, discounting them, demeaning their efforts. And so this, this, if we can look at the great resignation in a different way, it's, it's the logical conclusion of people feeling demeaned for decades. And so you've got folks that that unfortunately, you know, businesses closed, their jobs went away, they were laid off. Now we've got a bit of a over the last four months or five months, a bit of a break. And of course, the surge with the virus is, is, is really inhibiting that globally. But we had companies trying to open up and they, they couldn't hire people back. People were not going back. And and I, I remember an article last month where I saw, you know, cool robots in a diner in Texas because I didn't have enough people. So I'm going to send these plates around with these cool little robots and and that may solve the problem. It hasn't. That may be entertaining to customers, not particularly. Um, the reality is, is that unless leaders treat employees with respect and they force colleagues to treat their you know peers with respect then they're going to have they're going to have a, a hiring problem for some time so are you saying that respect is the magic bullet we i think we are well and i'll add to that 
Carol, I, you asked, you know, uh, specific industries and Chris is absolutely right. It's across the board. It's, it's not industry dependent. It's definitely company and specifically leadership dependent. But every day we hear stories with just another one came out yesterday of, of, of a Southwest Airlines flight attendant being sent to the hospital for enforcing mask mandates. We've had, we've had hostesses and food servers across the country being accosted because they were asked to ask customers for proof of vaccination. And and just yesterday, I had a colleague reach out from the education world and say, you know, Mark, you've been in the career space for a long time. You and your career buddies, you could make a ton of money just helping teachers transition out of teaching because the teaching profession is getting killed. We're, we have all of the risk. We have none of the, none of the, all of the responsibility and none of the authority. And my colleagues are, I mean, they don't know if they can hold on throughout the rest of the school year. And so those, those sectors particularly, you know, you think of a food server working late into the night and then having to close down the place working for not even minimum wage. Yes, they get tips, but the more surly people get, the, the harder that is to count on, right? You think of people going up and down the aisle in an aircraft being the enforcer of rules they didn't help create. It just be all, and it sure wasn't in their job description when they signed on board, right? And and you think of these teachers that now they're they're torn between the anti-vaskers and the anti-maskers and the and then people who feel just as passionately about if my kid's mask, yours has to be too, right? It's this. Yeah. On top of all this divisiveness that we've had over the last four or five years, especially in the U.S., now we have this. Well, why would people want to go back to work if that's how they're treated? And and it's it's worth noting in each of these examples, it's the customers treating those people, those professionals with disrespect. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, how should an organization Hold people accountable for respect when it's something that you cannot quantify, especially in a world where we're so dashboard focused. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you've hit the nail on the head, Carol. And and what we propose uh, in, in in good comes first is that we do want to make respect quantifiable and leaders get that kind of interesting dog tilted head going. You want to measure values. I don't think you can do that. Well, what we realize is that leaders have been trained to and asked to manage results, manage performance. And so the trick there is you you create clear performance expectations and hold people accountable. And what we know is that leaders have a hard time doing that. That's not easy to do. And you might have wonderful dashboards, but if people aren't delivering and you're not engaging with them to find out what the holdup is, why we're going to miss this deadline, why we didn't make, you know, the expected profits from this week, this month, et cetera. That's that's the leader's sole job in many leaders' minds. And we come in and say, congratulations, you're managing results. That's exactly half of your job. Managing respect is the other half. And again, they've never been asked to do this. Most leaders don't know how, and they certainly don't have an experience of being able to evolve their work culture. They've never been taught how to do that. So we basically apply the same concepts of clear expectations and then holding people accountable for respect and for values. And let me give you an example. One of the, one of the pieces that we help 
organizations get to is an organizational constitution. The language is, is it all of a sudden comes very clear that, okay, and, and we could use Magna Carta as a, as a classic centuries old kind of viewpoint. It's the same thing. We need to formalize a servant purpose for the business that basically explains how your business improves the quality of life of folks in your community, of, of, of customers, et cetera. That's respectful. We certainly need to, you know, deliver the widgets that we've promised and do so in a way that, that lets us have, you know, some, some revenue, you know, at the end of the week, at the end of the month. What we haven't done though is formalize values that are tangible, observable and measurable. So we teach leaders to basically, um, craft values that are in essence, descriptive of how you want people to behave. And so a classic one is many organizations, when they come to us, they say, we need to boost integrity in, in the way we operate our business and the way we treat each other, the way we treat customers, et cetera, which says a lot about, isn't it unfortunate that we're not integritous enough? I don't know if that's a word or not, but to be able to say, okay, good. What do you mean by integrity? What does it look like? And, and that's sometimes a hard thing to say. So we say, well, let's use, let's use some of our 20 years plus experience of, of helping clients define what they mean by behaving in a way that honors, demonstrates the values you want. Then let's define behaviors, two or three of them, that will be, in essence, describing exactly how you want people to behave. And so with integrity, one of the very classic behaviors we coach is I do what I say I will do. We've now moved that from a vague aspirational idea to a very tactical way that I'm going to interact with everybody. So if I accept I do what I say I will do as a behavior that's going to guarantee our model integrity, then I better be making commitments that I'm very conscious of. I better be coming back and reporting to others on how I'm doing with my commitments. If there's a problem, tell them a month in advance, not a month later. So, so we literally help give leaders the practical tools to make respect observable, tangible, measurable. How does that look on a scorecard? Well, that's that's the perfect question. We we literally help leaders craft and we walk leaders how to do this. And good comes first. We walk them through the whole process and we say, let's use Chris's example. Mark does what he says he will do. Or maybe put another Mark keeps his promises. Right. So however they define that now over the course of the next six months, we ask the people that are within that person's sphere of influence. How often or not how often. Um, Mark keeps his promises, scale of one to six. And and you actually collect data on very human behavior that up until now, because we just hadn't defined a behavior that that if that behavior was lived, modeled, coached, that would indicate that, yes, that person's acting with integrity. And now we ask four or five questions along those same lines of everybody within the sphere of influence and we have an objective data on a human value. And and it 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 works so well, Carol, that when we hand this data to to a client or to a reader of Good Comes First, when they look at their data, they go, Wow, I had no idea. I had no idea that's how people really thought about 
that value. And it may be a value that I feel really strongly about, but man, if I got to make that third quarter report look really good for the investors of the shareholders and, and I need to move some sales numbers from fourth quarter into third quarter to make that happen. Well, I'm going to do that because I'm measured on results. Well, what does that tell everybody around you? They know that you move those numbers. They know that you're not acting with integrity. They know that you you have been willing to compromise that value in the past. Why should we tr- trust you now? Why should we follow your lead now? When you say we all need to act with respect and with integrity, why should we believe you're going to do that? And it's a it's a vicious circle that starts. I know you mentioned that your data did you start with the end in mind? I know you have your book, Good Comes First. Did you have an inkling that there was something happening in the workplace and you sought this data? Or did you have an idea about the book and then you sought the data? Great question. We've been doing this work with clients for a really long time. My first book on these ideas about making cultures measurable is called The Culture Engine, and it was published in 2014. So we've been doing this work and, and in essence, applying a proven process for clients for 25 years plus. So we've had the data for a long time. And what has been really truly beneficial is I think what we've been able to do with clients is to help them understand that if you don't measure the valued behaviors that you're proposing, that you're publishing, that you have on the walls, then then they can become a lie because all of a sudden people see there's no accountability, there's no consequence. And that consequence piece is there's no consequences if I do demonstrate the behaviors you want because you're not paying attention. There's no measurement. There's no validation. But there's also no consequence for misbehaving. And so if leaders tolerate bad behavior, boy, that message gets through, you know, your, your, you could have a global organization and that message gets through everybody's email, texts, Slack, et cetera, within seconds. Now, I know you mentioned you had some of this data for a long time. Certainly you started writing your material for your book prior to the pandemic. And it was published in the midst of the pandemic. So if you were writing this book today, what would you have included in the book that is not in the book? Oh, wow. What a great question. So I will tell you that Chris and I actually started writing this book, Chris, three years ago. And then the pandemic hit. And and the pandemic hit in a time in our society in the United States primarily, but but also throughout the world and uh, certainly North America, where the world had become more polarizing, more more um, divisive, and and people were responding almost as if as if they were anonymous to public debate, and so in the middle of writing this book, Chris and I had to take a step back and go, well, first of all, the pandemic has changed everything. The the first, the first uh, manuscript had included, you know, leaders must learn to embrace remote working. Well, that's already happening. We can't write that now. Right. So, um, but the, the bigger issue was just this decline of societal norms. And, and, and that's where the, the title came from. Good comes first, because we saw people perfectly willing to sacrifice 
the the mental well-being of others just to get ahead or just to be right in a in a particular argument and and so we're happy to say and Chris I'm going to let you take a shot answering this too my answer to the direct answer to your question is because we had that opportunity to reboot mid pandemic and because our publisher was willing to live with us and go okay we're going to we're going to believe in you here we're going to give you a little extra time we're going to get this thing done but it's going to be even more relevant. I can't think of a single thing that we that we hadn't included. And we even anticipated things like the Great Resignation, because in the book, manuscript turned in October of last year, well before this mass employee exodus happened, we, we told leaders in the book, if you don't fix this, people are going to leave. And that's and it's literally happening in real time right now. Well, and if I can add one of the things that, that we looked at from a future of work standpoint with the first part of the manuscript, the first rights of, of this book was that, you know, generations are going to behave very differently with old school autocratic command and control leadership philosophies and Gen Y's and Gen Z's are not going to put up with that. And boy, has that played out in the last, let's call it 18 months. But the, the insights that we got and, and some of Mark's language that, that was boldly in our abstract that said good must come first for employees, meaning we have to help leaders realize that the experience that their employees have creates buzz. It creates buzz within their networks on social, within their own families. And so to understand that if you want to create a community of people who feel respected, who feel validated, who will go above and beyond for your customers and your business, you can't treat them like cogs in a wheel. You cannot treat them disrespectfully. And so what we really found with the 80th rewrite may not have been quite that bad. It was at least seven rewrites <laughs> is, is that we, we, we hit it as we hoped we would hit it. We had, Great feedback from the editors at Ben Bella Books, at Matt Holt Books. And, and Matt was very, very clear. He's our publisher to say, this is, this is not a pandemic book. This is not a pandemic idea. This is flat out a human condition that we can fix. In the first few chapters, you address why too many cultures suck, your words, not mine, <laughs> and introduce the good. And you also introduce in the first few chapters, you know, the good come first uh, model. So I know this is a weird yeah. question, but how do you define good and how do you define sucks? Like what constitutes a culture <laughs> that is good from one that sucks? Well, it it. it it, it's hard. And one of the first things we say, we say it in chapter one. No, Chris, I actually think we think we say it in the introduction is we can't define good for you. We can't define good for your team, your leadership, cadre, your employees. That's up to you. Because if you go to different regions of the country, if you go to different uh, spots in the world, good means something completely different. And, and even in like, you know, I'm a veteran of Silicon Valley. Good means one thing to one startup. And then that meeting, you could take it to another startup and it means nothing to them. Right. So, so, but still we had to start somewhere. Right. And, and you can't, you can't boldly say on the, on the green cover, good comes first without having some idea of what that means. And, and so we set out to research the companies that we'd worked with and some we had not worked with. And we kind of sampled everyone and, 
And we kind of, so, you know, what does good mean to you? And, and that's what the word respect just kept coming up over and over and over and over again. And so, so the foundational principle of good comes first is leaders must equally value respect and results. We've already talked about that. And on, and below that or above that built upon that is, is four cornerstones and, and the, the companies that proved they were already good companies. They met these four criteria, and they and they range from uh, from things we've already talked about, like lean on trust, validation, and personal professional growth. Right, that was a cornerstone of all the companies we felt were good. And then and then, but it also transcended work. For instance, one of our cornerstones is use our voice for good, especially the millennials and the Gen Z that Chris already mentioned. They want to work for companies where the leader is willing to stick his personal neck out to support community issues, to to uh, eliminate homelessness and, and poverty, to talk, uh, you know, intelligently, emotionally intelligently about things like climate change, right? Um, the whole anti-vax, anti-mask thing, right? They 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 want to work for people who. I want to know where you stand and I, I know what you, I want to know what you stand for and I want to know what you won't stand for. Right. And so, so this use, use the voice for good is how we encapsulated this, yeah. this um, process where the, the leaders who were treating their people with the most respect were also treating their community and, and their, and their country and their, and, and their, their planet with respect. And, and so all of this research kind of came in to say, we can't help you define good. You have to do that when you when you set out in in section two of the book. You have to define that uh, on your own. But here's our idea. And then, as you said, Carol, we we gave some pretty clear examples. We weren't afraid to name names. We we listed several companies that we considered good, several companies we considered bad, and uh, several companies that uh, are just plain old ugly. And 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 by the way. They're still ugly. They still haven't fixed what we saw as troubling them. <laughs> you talked about um, community involvement, and I think most organizations today um, espouse some type of corporate social responsibility, whether it's legitimate or not. I think some people are just on it for the bandwagon. But midway in your your book, you you address some guidance and some tactical strategies to learn the importance of servant purpose. And when I think about servant purpose, my mind automatically associates this with nonprofits. And I know you're not talking necessarily about nonprofits. You're also talking about for-profits. Why do you feel this is so important to identify and why did you use the term servant purpose? You know, what's what's interesting, Carol, is is through our years and working with with organizations as we began to with the early let's call it versions of organizational constitution it was clear mission clear purpose well unfortunately what we found was as as we inspired leaders to kind of look beyond the obvious you know we need to do the results we need to get the money in i early early on boy this was back 20 plus years ago where i said go interview people just go interview throughout your organization and say, what's the purpose of our company and record what you get. And the old video cameras were pretty good size, right? They were shoulder, you know, mounted kinds of beasts. 
And to a person, 99% of the responses they got was to build shareholder value, to, to make money, to, to uh, grow the company. None of it was about to what end, for example, with how are our communities impacted by what we do and how we do it? How are our customers impacted by what we do and how we do it? And we think everything from from water quality in some companies. We've got some interesting dynamics in Michigan that have been issues for 25 years and longer with with communities that are still unable to have running water in their schools for elementary school kids. And it's, how did we let this go? How did we not have organizations and many, many organizations have done a lot and they do espouse service. They might give someone, you know, here's eight hours a year, go volunteer for a food kitchen or Habitat for Humanity, et cetera. What we're looking for is organizational commitment, which could mean take two weeks and go to Haiti and help wherever you can there. Um, cause that's, that's still a mess after I think two hurricanes ago and an earthquake. So there's, there's the ideal of if we're truly committed to, and the servant purpose is to what end? How, how does what we do impact the quality of life of people in our communities? There's thousands of things that you can do. And when you have people who are, interested in improving kind of the livelihoods of others, right? The the quality of life of others. And you offer them a formal, structured, supported, even funded couple of weeks, right? All of a sudden I can I can stand up just a little taller. I can I can be proud of what my organization is doing beyond kind of the the core nut of we've got a budget to hit. Do you think organizations can afford to do that? And I, not just in a financial sense, but in a process organizational sense, can they afford to do what you're suggesting? Well, they, they can't afford not to. It's, it's as simple as that. I, we've, we've tracked this and, and by putting good first, by, by living this servant purpose, you, you positively impact every business metric. Many, many metrics we've actually been trying to treat as um, problems rather than the symptom. Uh, well, let's take employee engagement, for example. We have spent billions of dollars over the last 20 to 30 years trying to fix employee engagement. Well, how can we ask employees to be more engaged when they don't trust the leaders, when the company culture sucks, when they don't even want to work there anymore, right? It's It's... That's a employee engagement is basically a management manipulation tool because you're not fixing the problem. You're just making feel people feel better about the problem. Well, that's manipulation in its purest form, right? Yeah. So engagement, that whole engagement thing, that's systemic. Oh, that's Carol, not, don't get yeah. don't get us started on that, or we'll be here for two hours. Um, <laughs> but but and I and I use engagement because that's a personal hot button for me. It's it's a it's a it's what's a the number there. now? The last number <laughs> I heard of employee disengagement was around seventy percent of the yep. employees were still. disengaged. Still, okay. Same same as it was in nineteen ninety two, yep. right, Chris? Nineteen ninety two. So for 30 years, the number, yep. we haven't moved yep, the needle yep, yep. one little bit, billions of dollars, tons of consultants, 80 million books, 
um, 800 million blog posts and we haven't changed a thing, right? Because we're trying to fix the symptom, not the problem. And, and we can say the same thing about retention, employee referral rates, customer satisfaction rates, um, uh, hiring rates. How, do, how, how many battles for top talent do we win? Well, when we live our servant purpose, now people want to stay. And then they not only want to stay, but they want to invite their friends to come work here, right? So retention rates and hiring rates go up. We provide better customer service. So we're now building customers for life instead of one-time transactional um, relationships, right? So once we start living our servant purpose, every metric that we've been throwing all this money at for all these years, all of a sudden it starts to creep up. And that, Carol, is the biggest thing when we work with clients We'll sit down and the CEO will go, I can't believe what's happened over the last nine months. I can't believe all these metrics that we that we care so much about. We we couldn't we couldn't move the needle the last six, eight, ten years, but in the last nine months we're seeing this huge increase in part, large part, because we stopped focusing on the value we were providing shareholders and we stopped caring about our stakeholders, our employees, our customers, our vendors, our contractors, our freelancers, our leaders. And and we allowed personal and professional growth. We used our voice for good. And now people actually want to work here. And it's and it's a it's a corporate epiphany. It hap- and it happens every time. So you would love the idea if an organization had their mission statement, their value statement, and then their servant purpose statement. Yeah, absolutely. And well, it, it's interesting because often mission statements really are more focused upon shareholder mm-hmm. value. It's on the money. All that, all that is vitally important. There's no question that making money is a good thing. However, comma, you're, you're battling unhappy people, lousy, frustrating systems. There, there's not much more you can do to make it worse, but there are ways you can make it better. And, and I'll never forget this was, 20 years ago with a, a, a catalog printing company in Minnesota. And they reached out to us because they had done a corporate, there were eight plants in their system. They did a corporate engagement study and their plant was the lowest scoring in the system, which meant eight other plants. And they were at 32%. Of engagement. I'm thinking that's pretty, it's pretty close to what Gallup's numbers are, but they wanted to improve. And within six months, they had gains of 40%, measurable gains of 40% on engagement. Customer service had completely turned around. Those ratings went up by 40% as well. And what a surprise, better results, happier customers, and those Profit results numbers went up 35%. Well, as, as we invite clients to consider what would it take for you to have 35% growth in profits? And all of a sudden, the senior leaders are pretty focused on that. I said, good. They are. Well, in 18 months, we can get to that because in this first month, you're actually going to treat people respectfully and you're not going to tolerate disrespectful treatment. And that process and consequence management and modeling and coaching and measuring the degree to which your leaders are actually treating others respectfully, that will change your culture. Many organizations already have what they considered shared values, mission and vision statements where the employees are aware 
of the behaviors that whether they're implicit or, or explicit, why would they feel like they want to read this book? So if they say, we know what we are, we already have behaviors that are established. We already have a mission statement. We already have a value statement and we, we know our purpose. Tell them why they want to read your book. Because if they actually go out to their employee base and their customer base and their vendor base, most leaders are going to find that, yes, it's, it's, it's screwed to the wall in the lobby and it's maybe on a poster in the, in the conference rooms, but that's, we're not living those values. I mean, you look at, um, you look at how many mission statements include words like diversity, equity, inclusion, and then you walk in the boardroom and there's not one single person that isn't white present. Right. Well, don't get me started on that. There's yeah. another two hours, yeah. right? So, so you you look at uh, female representation in in the C-suite. You <laughs> look at old white guys making des- decisions that affect the work of of people of color of of different generations, and they're not included in the in the discussions, the decisions, right? right? And and so by default. When you look at 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 ninety percent of the companies that include DEI in their in their mission statements, you know they're living a lie, and and it's that slap in the face, Carol. It's that look, we've had this mission statement for thirty five years, and I'm just now realizing that I can't count on what our about us page says. I can't I can't even agree with what our the, the first paragraph of the job description says about us. I sure as hell can't, excuse my language, can't can't believe in the mission statement that I walk by every day when I come in the lobby because we're not living that. And Carol, we're telling you, 90% of the companies we interview, they're not living that. They're, yes, they have their value statement. Yes, yes, they have their, their mission statement, but they're not actually living those values. And that's that, that lack of self-awareness, especially among... And we, and we call this out in the book, we call it boomer male syndrome, especially among older white male leaders who believe in, in what they want to believe in, because that's what their autocratic command and control, control leadership style dictates they do. They don't want to hear the truth and they don't, they don't want to know how, what it's really like to be a person of color within this company or to be an, a, a, an ambitious female within this company or, or to be anybody else that's earned that promotion, but didn't get it because that old white guy in the C-suite is going to hire people who look and act and talk and think like he does. And, and so good comes first is really about helping people gain this sense of awareness that maybe we're not living these flowery words that are up on the wall, but we, we need to make real change. And, 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 and um, the proof's in the pudding. If your company right now, is really struggling to find good people and you're not hiring the good people that are available, you're not living your values. Chris and I can guarantee you, you are not living your mission statement right now because if you were that kind of company, you wouldn't be having that kind of a problem. Let's just say a company becomes aware from this conversation that we're having today. They've read your book. They're thinking, hmm, you know, we meet, we need to make some changes. How can they 
pivot and change their organizational culture to one where they're able to drive and sustain the organizational cultural change that you are talking about? What can they do? How do they reboot? The first thing we suggest they do, and, and Carol, you mentioned it earlier, it's an accountability question. And it's, it's number one, you've got to define what you want and you may have definitions on the wall, right? Values have been, have been formalized, but there's no measurement. There's no metrics. There's no dashboard. And so the first thing we coach leaders to do is let's do some assessment. Let's invite employee opinion. Let's do it. And, and we do it in a number of ways. We do it with, uh, with focus groups. We do it with, you know, kind of <clears throat> subtle, casual, informal meetings on the plant floor, just during breaks, et cetera. We do discovery interviews so we can learn how the, the operation really works and how people are treated. And, and leaders don't need us to do that. You can go out and pose questions, take your top values and go out and inquire and say, I need, here's a safe, anonymous, confidential survey process. Tell us how we're doing on our five values on the wall. And trust me, they're going to be surprised. And, and what's interesting with, with organizations, and I remember, oh, this was 30 years ago, a, a global automobile manufacturer, doesn't need to be named, did an employee survey globally, and the results were so bad that they chose not to disclose them. They did not publish the typical post-survey, here's what we learned, here's what we're doing well, here's some gaps, here's what we're going to do. They ignored it for 18 months. And I said to the senior leaders, do you think your employees don't know how it is to work here? And how lack of diversity doesn't happen and how decisions are made that are completely inconsistent with respect and honesty and excellence. And, and, and that's embarrassing. And so I said, just tell them, just gather the data, learn from it, feed it back. And then you've got five years of work probably to do to change stupid policies, to revise frustrating systems. And it's going to be, it's going to be a lifetime of, of tweaking it, but you have to ask. You cannot close your door and assume that the focus that I have, which is entirely on results, and I have enough trouble trying to keep that going, right? And I never pay attention to respect. That's the drawback. So we tell them, you've got to learn what the actual employee experience is every day. Well, you know, I could talk to you two guys for a very long time on all of these issues. Well, you all will have to come back because this is just so engaging. I've made a list, And these girl. are all I've the made a hot list buttons, of, yeah. actually, for me as well. So I want to thank you both for being here, for sharing your research, for coming and talking about your book, and just creating an awareness that just doesn't get enough emphasis um, within um, organizational settings. And so the book is called Good Comes First, and I hope you both have much success with this book. But where can the listeners find your book and where can they reach you if they have some questions or want more information? Well, Carol, they can always find the book on Amazon.com. But we're also very proud to say that uh, the book was picked up by um, Penguin Random House. So it's also available in in nice. uh, just about every independent store and every airport on the planet right now. So, and then uh, to learn more about us, we actually have a website, good, as you can imagine, goodcomesfirst.com, where you can learn more about the book, more about Chris and I, 
And and hopefully when you go there, it isn't just a it isn't just a website. We didn't want it to be just a place to go sell a book. We actually wanted to help people think a little bit. Like, is my company am I really ready to lead this this charge? This this am I a change champion? And even if I am, is my leader fellow leaders ready? So hopefully, uh, once people go to goodcomesfirst.com, it'll make them think a little bit. And also in your book, you have strategies and tactics in your book as well. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, uh, Carol, just this morning, I was told um, by a fellow uh, consultant, a fellow practitioner that we were idiots. Absolutely. We literally gave up all of our secret sauce in the book. And and we did. And we and we did it um, with with all self-awareness. We wanted people to be able to pick up this book and change their company cultures without it needing to call a consultant. And. And so, yes, uh, the, the, the book is um, hopefully not just inspirational, but tactical and practical, too. I like it. I think it's excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here. And listeners, thank you for joining. Thank you for listening in. I'm Dr. Carol Isom Barnes, and I look forward to you returning for another episode in two weeks. In the meantime, I can be reached at Carol at experienceleadership.com. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Chris and Mark, again, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Carol. Appreciate it.